Predictive prophecy. It's all over the Bible. It is typically what we think of when we think of the overarching concept of prophecy. Prophecy, in general, however, is really speaking for God. That's why we have the common construction in the Old Testament, in the prophets, when they say, the word of the Lord came to blank. Uh, And we saw it last week as well with Balaam, as several times in Numbers 23 and 24, it says, the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, that is prophecy. It's speaking for God. It's using the words of God. It is specific revelation for a specific purpose. And it always brings God glory. In the case of predictive prophecy, however, we have God revealing the truth, but doing so in advance. He does it before it actually happens. He does it before he makes it come to pass. But why? Why does God declare something that will happen in the future? Well, for one, God makes it very clear that he is the only one that can do this. He is the only one who knows the future. He is the only one that's able to accomplish the future. His predictions are more than just predictions. They are sure. They are certain. And they are true. No matter what happens, if God has made a promise, it will come to pass. It will happen. God boasts about this fact in Isaiah chapter 41 and following, as he calls out the false gods and shows their futility. They are nothing and can do nothing. Only he knows everything in the present. Only he knows everything that has happened in the past. And only he knows the future. And he reveals that future for our benefit and for his glory. Another reason God reveals the future is because it builds anticipation. It builds hope. We saw that to a point last week as the writers of the keepers of the Dead Sea Scrolls They were very careful to understand God's promises for the future. They couldn't wait for them to actually come true. They cherished the idea of fulfillment and eagerly anticipated when it would happen. They especially cherished the passage we looked at last week in Numbers chapter 24 about a coming God-king from Israel in the latter days. The used symbol of a star Uh, is what they put in mosaics, in coins, in stamps, in drawings, and many other items to remember that God was not done. They were struggling, though. They felt far from God. They had been disobedient. But because God had made a promise, they held on to that promise. The star continued to be a rallying figure in the 2nd century B.C. with the Maccabean Revolt. They overthrew the Greek control of Jerusalem and finally regained proper worship in the temple. They even set up a dynasty of kings and minted their own coins with, guess what, a star. It was a time of pride and joy for the people of Israel. It was what they had hoped would be a taste of the future of when God would fully fulfill all of his promises about Israel regaining independence and prominence over all nations of the earth. But it wasn't the time. The promised peace and reversal of the curse of sin were still future to them. It wasn't the time yet. And timing was very important. Peace together with Balaam's prophecy about the latter days was a very important prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Most of the time this prophecy is referred to as the 70 weeks of Daniel or Daniel's 70 weeks. This is a magnificent prophecy that is also called the backbone of all biblical prophecy. 
It's where Daniel is anticipating the end of the exile of the people of Israel uh, that Jeremiah had talked about, uh, 70 years that Israel would undergo God's discipline outside of the land that they had, that had been promised to Abraham. But they had broken the covenant of God, and that's why they would go through that discipline outside of the land. The promised king was supposed to come. That is what Daniel heard from the angel. The promised king, the Messiah, would come after 69 sets of seven, or 69 sets of seven years for you who might be like me and struggle with that immediate mental math. That's 483 years. 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, the Messiah was supposed to come. This predictive prophecy about the one who was to come was very specific a specific timeline. It wasn't just the latter days anymore. He was worth looking forward to. He was the one that God had chosen to bring Israel back, to make them a great nation again, and to reverse the curse of sin and death. The people of the Dead Sea Scrolls held this prophecy right next to the one that we looked at last week in Numbers chapter 24. No longer was this prophecy just about the latter days, as Balaam had called them, but God added more revelation to narrow the scope. Now there was a timetable, and that clock was ticking. That brings us to our text for today, at the beginning of the gospel according to Matthew. The whole purpose of this book that Matthew has written is to show that Jesus is the rightful Messiah. He is the anointed one from Daniel chapter 9. He is the God King from Balaam's oracle in Numbers chapter 24. He is the one who will possess the throne of David that is anticipated in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let's open up to Matthew's writing and see how he starts making this case for Jesus to be the Messiah. We see right at the beginning of Matthew chapter 1, that's where I'd like you to look. We're not going to look through, we're not going to read through this entire genealogy, but just look how this starts. It starts with a long section that are often called the begats, uh, where the old King James phrase represents this genealogy from father to son, as Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob. That's why they're called the begats. It's a section that is often skipped over because there are many difficult names to pronounce, but the purpose that Matthew puts this in for is very important for us. Matthew starts making the case for Jesus being the Messiah at the very beginning of this book by directing the attention to Jesus' lineage through his adoptive father, Joseph. And he does this by pointing out what would be required of the Messiah. Just look at it there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promised king of God's choosing had very important ties to other promises of God. Specifically, the Messiah, or anointed one, had to come to and fulfill two different covenants, the Davidic and the Abrahamic. The Davidic we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and the Abrahamic covenant we see in Genesis 12 and 15. God had promised, regardless of what anyone else tried to do, that he would bless the whole world through Abraham's family. This was the promise in Genesis 12, Uh, verses uh, 2 and 3, where he told Abraham this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
This was a promise of God, an unconditional covenant. No matter what Abraham or anyone else did, God made this promise and he would make it happen. All the families of the earth would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to come from the line of Abraham. And we see through this genealogy that he did. The other line that Jesus had to come through was the line of David. David was anointed to be king over Israel by the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. But he doesn't actually become king until 2 Samuel chapter 5 over the whole nation of Israel. He was marked to be king of God's choice by the prophet many years before it actually took place and before he actually took the throne to rule. Keep that in mind for later. But as David finally becomes king after the death of Saul and his sons, David seeks to build a house for Yahweh, a temple. But God says instead that he will build David a house, a royal dynasty. That's where you have this promise of God to David, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse, 7, verse 16. It says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David was a powerful and good king, but he had flaws. He had some very public sin. He sought after God and sought to glorify him, but the prophets after David continued to, to announce from God that the, Messiah, that, that the messianic king would be better than even David. He would be like David in his love for God, but he would never fall into sin, and he would never have his kingdom come to an end. The Messiah would be from David, but better than David. For Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to be from the line of David. And that's where Matthew starts. He gives the background and he remembers the promises of God. And that is key. We're going to look today at three characteristics of fulfilled prophecy. Three characteristics of fulfilled prophecy. And we're coming to our first point right here, our first characteristic of fulfilled prophecy. The first one is that God's predictive prophecies are consistent. God's predictive prophecies are are consistent. What I mean by this is that what God says goes. He does not change his mind, and we saw that several times last week with Balaam. As God was unyielding to Balaam, this obstinate pagan prophet, but continued to bless the people of Israel and not change his mind. In the same way, when God declares something about the future, it will happen, and it will happen as he said it. In this case, this was a big problem for Israel. They weren't an independent nation, and by the time that Jesus is about to be born, they hadn't been an independent nation for nearly 600 years. They had gone into exile, and the people were encouraged and at some points even required to marry foreigners, diluting the precious promised bloodlines. That's how the Samaritans had come into the picture, As the northern kingdom of Israel is taken off into exile by Assyria, other nations are placed in the land and are forced to intermarry with the remaining Israelites, the remnant that is there. And so they become a sort of half-breeds. That's why there is so much disdain and hate for the Samaritans within the pages of the New Testament text. They were despised by the full-blooded Jews because this was what many thought was a picture of their wickedness 
and their stubbornness to not trust in God's promises. At several points in the oppression by Assyria, Babylon, and even Persia, Israel was greatly threatened. They were almost wiped out completely by a man named Haman in the book of Esther. But God preserved a remnant. His promise was hard to keep, to bring someone from the bloodlines of Abraham and David, but he, he kept it. Because he had said it, he chose to do it. He must do it. And he saved the people of Israel many times, even more than are mentioned in the pages of Scripture. Because the fulfillment of God's promises are always consistent. They happen just as they were said to. And that's why Matthew starts by giving Jesus' genealogy. For him to be recognized as the Messiah, this was the starting point. This had to be true. He must be from the line of David and from the line of Abraham. And it's really interesting to me that this was undisputed. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there's many people that doubt him to be the Messiah, but they never bring the claim that he is not actually from the line of David. They accept that fact. They know that to be true because the records of the genealogies are kept in the temple. No one can change that. Everyone had access to it, and no one uh, was kept from it. No one was able to claim that Jesus was from the wrong lineage. What they were anticipating is what would happen. Jesus would come from the line of Abraham and the line of David. After this introduction of Jesus as being from the line of David and Abraham, Matthew goes into an announcement of Jesus' birth by an angel. Let's read to the end of Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, he only makes note of the angel coming to Joseph after Mary had conceived of the Holy Spirit. Luke, on the other hand, uh, gives a lot more information from, uh, from Mary as he had personally interviewed Mary to get her account of all that had happened. In both cases, the angels declare that the child in Mary's womb was divine. It was conceived miraculously by God. There would be a virgin birth. This was obviously not a natural occurrence, but I think it's important to understand what is going on here. The second characteristic of fulfilled prophecies is this. God's predictive prophecies are fulfilled literally. God's predictive prophecies are fulfilled literally. Now, this is a really important point based on what we saw with last week with Balaam's oracle of the star and the scepter being the same. But how could deity 
and a human king be the same? Surely it must be a euphemism because that just can't happen, right? Well, I'm here to tell you that God's predictive prophecies are fulfilled literally. That's what we have right here with Jesus. As Balaam had predicted it, so it came to be. The God King was a real concept, and though it would have been difficult for anyone to understand how this could happen, it did. God made a young virgin conceive outside of natural human sexual relations to make Jesus the true God-man. Fully God, pre-existing with the Father before time, yet also fully man being born of a woman and taking on human flesh, Jesus is the fulfillment of this impossible prophecy. God didn't pull an April Fool's joke. He didn't dilute the promise to make it easier to fulfill. No, it was bold, and he did it just that way. His prophecies are fulfilled literally. Let's keep reading on into Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We'll pause right there for a minute. Uh, these wise men here are most likely piecing together the different prophecies that we've already talked about. It's interesting that the Israelites don't piece together the same prophecies, but I think it's, it's really important for us to see that it's foreigners who remember and see the fulfillment of the promise. And I think that starts with how those prophecies were delivered. Think about the prophecy from Balaam in Numbers chapter 24. He is a pagan prophet under the payment of the Moabite king. But he is d delivering this magnificent prophecy for the people of Israel. It's interesting that Balaam is not only found in the Bible, but he's also found in extra-biblical sources. Archaeology has found in the Deir Allah inscription in northwest Jordan, which is now in the Citadel Museum in Ammon, or Amman. It says in that inscription, Balaam, the son of Beor, the seer. Sounds exactly the same as what you have at the beginning of his prophecies in the Bible. This man was a prophet to more than just Israel. There is outside evidence for people keeping and remembering his prophecies. He's not an Israelite, but this prophecy was not just for the Israelites to know. The same thing with Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is in exile in the land of Babylon, and he is there for God to glorify himself by showing that God is greater than these other nations that have taken Israel into exile. But Daniel doesn't just write in Hebrew in his book. Most of his book is actually written in Aramaic, the language of Babylon. His prophecies are not just for the people of Israel, but for all nations of the world. He's an Israelite prophet, but in the land of captivity, his message is to those in captivity in this foreign land. I think that's why, you see, most of his book is written in Aramaic. The wise men, these foreigners, these men from the east, know these prophecies. And they piece it together when they see this, uni this unique star in the heavens. When they see these things happen, they go to the capital of Israel to find where the foretold king of the Jews would be born. This leads us to our third characteristic of fulfilled prophecy today. 
It should be number three up there. But God's predictive prophecies come true at their appointed time. God's predictive prophecies come true at their appointed time. This is what we see with Daniel's 70 weeks. The wise men knew roughly when it should happen. The Messiah is to take his kingdom after the 69th week or after the 483rd year. We saw the same thing with a prophecy about a time period coming true at the appointed time with Moses in Exodus chapter 2, remembered by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, that Moses knew the time of the 400-year prophecy to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 15 was about to be completed. Those 400 years were about to be up. We saw the same thing with Daniel in knowing the 70 years of exile were about to be completed that Jeremiah had declared. And now we see the same thing, that Jesus came at just the right time. Just look here at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Paul writes this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now there's a lot wrapped up in these two verses, but it's so important, it's at just the right time. It's at the appointed time. God's prophecies are fulfilled at their appointed time. Let's keep reading in verses 3 through 6 now. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Herod was troubled by someone else being called the king of the Jews. And this was because he himself called himself the king of the Jews. In fact, he took the prophecy of Balaam of the star and the scepter and applied that to himself. But he didn't actually fulfill that prophecy. He was an Idumean or an Edomite. He was not of the correct bloodlines. He was not the anointed one that God had chosen. But he tried to make himself appear that way. That's why he did all that he could to endear himself to the people of Israel so that they would change the prophecy that God had given and apply it to him. That's why he built the temple so magnificent and glorious to try to endear himself to the people of Israel. He was seeking this magnificence and glory that only God gets from actual fulfilled prophecy. Herod was not the fulfillment of this prophecy. And so they ask, where is the Christ? That's the Greek version of Messiah, this anointed one. Where is he to be born? You see that in verse 4. Those who know God's word know. The scribes and the Pharisees who know God's word know where the Messiah was to be born. And they expect a literally fulfilled prophecy. They expect someone from the line of David. And they look to Bethlehem. Because that's what Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says. You, O Bethlehem, you are the one where the ruler shall come from. Uh, from you shall be the one that comes to shepherd my people Israel. Let's keep going now. As Herod hears that Bethlehem is the place Verses 7 through 12, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he, said to, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, 
Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The wise men found the Messiah, and they bowed to him and worshipped him. This little baby in a manger, they bowed and worshipped him. In doing so, they started the anticipation of the fullness of worship of this king. They gave a taste of some of the predictive prophecies that will eventually be fully fulfilled. That's what you see in Psalm chapter 72, uh, verse 9. It says, May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Same kind of thing in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. We have found the King. The Messiah has come. So what about his kingdom? What happens from here? There's a lot going on in the book of Matthew, but let me summarize some of the bullet points here. Herod seeks to kill the newborn king of the Jews, but Joseph and Mary flee with Jesus to Egypt and return. They return to Israel after the death of Herod in Matthew chapter 2, fulfilling what we saw last week in Numbers chapter 24, verse 8, out of Egypt I called my son. In Matthew chapter 3, John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, and foretold forerunner of the Messiah, calls the nation of Israel to repentance because the kingdom of heaven had drawn near. The anointed one is on the scene. Jesus agrees with this message from John the baptizer, and he gets baptized himself, aligning himself with the message. He also agrees that the king, him, has arrived. Immediately after, Jesus is then tempted in the wilderness by the devil, but prevails in Matthew chapter 4. And so he begins his ministry, calling disciples to himself and doing many miracles. He then shows himself to be the prophet like Moses that is foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And we see that in Matthew chapter 5 and following with the Sermon on the Mount. He declares higher standards for God's people than just what was revealed by Moses in the words and judgments given at Sinai. Instead of just actions being judged, the heart, the thoughts, and motives, they would be judged as well in the kingdom that Jesus describes. This brings out the enemies. Israel wanted a king. They wanted to be out of the thumb, out from under the thumb of Rome, but they didn't want it to cost them anything. They didn't want it to radically change their lives. They didn't want to submit to someone else's authority. Through his miracles, Jesus shows himself to be against the curse of sin and able to overcome it. This is what the promised Messiah was to do in the kingdom. 
Jesus gives his miracles as a sort of appetizer. But he senses the decision of the religious leaders of Israel that will eventually turn on him. He knows that he is going to be rejected. And that's the turning point of Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 12 with the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or attributing the work of God to Satan instead. Jesus knows then that he, as the king that has been rejected at this point, he he changes his ministry at this point. Instead of ushering in the kingdom right then and there, this physical kingdom that everyone anticipated and that God had promised, he instead thins out the crowd. He starts teaching in parables and he seeks to be alone with his, his disciples instead of drawing a large crowd. He seeks to be alone with the disciples to tell them a terrible upcoming truth. The Messiah, who is to have a kingdom that lasts forever, must first be rejected and die. He tells them many times that he must die, but they never understand the message. Their faith starts to shake, and they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They are ready for an earthly reign of the Messiah in Jerusalem, but because of the rejection of the people and the leaders of the people, the time was not then. So Jesus turns his attention in Matthew chapter 16 to a nearer and different purpose before the kingdom would be inaugurated on earth. As Jesus seeks time alone with his disciples, he finally gives them their most important quiz. He wants to see who they think he is. One of them, Simon, the son of Jonah, answers for the group, and he's correct as he chokes out the words, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. These are Jesus' two claims, and they go directly back to what we saw last week with Balaam, chapter 24, verse 17. It's exactly what Balaam had foretold more than 1,400 years before Christ, the King, would come. Christ, the king, the scepter, and God, the star. This is what Balaam prophesied about. Jesus was the fulfillment. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the one chosen by God to be king. He was the God king. So why does the narrative go in this direction? What is Matthew trying to point out? The foretold Messiah had come. But as Matthew writes his gospel account, maybe 20 years after Jesus had his ministry on earth, Rome was still in power. Israel had not become the political entity that the Bible had promised. They were not ruling over the rest of the world. So why was the kingdom not there if the Messiah, if the king, had come? It wasn't because God had changed his promises He didn't change the the prophecies of the past to give a figurative or spiritual fulfillment. Instead, Jesus had delayed the kingdom. The 70th week of Daniel had not yet come. Instead of a kingdom, God put an earthly plan into motion to to bring the people who had rejected their king back. He put the plan in motion to make them jealous. That's what Paul talks about in uh, Romans chapter 9 through 11. Jesus was rejected as the rightful king of Israel. He died on the cross to sign the new covenant in his blood. This is what inaugurated that covenant. That covenant was very clearly, this new covenant was supposed to be for the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's exactly what it says in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31. 
But instead of Israel enjoying the blessings of the covenant, they see the Gentiles, the wild branches, who have been grafted into the promise of Abrahamic covenant, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. They are enjoying the spiritual and current blessings of this new covenant, marked by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There are people today anointed by the Holy Spirit, showing that they are part of the new covenant, but the fullness of that covenant has not yet come. It won't come until the covenant maker returns. If you have believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus as the only possible way for you to be saved from your sins, you're correct. If you understand that you fall short of the glory of God and are in need of a Savior outside of yourself to take care of your problem of sin and wash you clean, you have been marked with the Holy Spirit. That is the deposit guaranteeing the fullness of the inheritance that is yet to come. You are enjoying some of the spiritual blessings of the new covenant already, namely the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness and remission of sins, and a right relationship with God. But what about the physical blessings that are all over the Old Testament? Have those just disappeared? No. What about the sinful flesh that we still fight against every single day? What about the rampant sin and pain and death that God said will not be there in the promised kingdom? Was he wrong about all that? No. The kingdom is still yet to come. Jesus said as much after he was resurrected and taught his disciples about the kingdom of God for 40 days after his resurrection. When it comes to his time for ascension in Acts chapter 1, they ask about the physical kingdom. Jesus said that they were not to know the time when it would come. The appointed time was not yet. Only the return of the king would bring the kingdom. We've seen through just the first couple chapters of Matthew how God fulfills his promises. He is consistent, and he fulfills his prophecies literally, and he does it at just the right time. So how are you feeling this morning? Are you worn down by the attacks of sin in your flesh? Are you weary about doing good when it would be so much easier to just lie down and let sin have its day? I pray that you don't. We need to be refreshed. We need to remember what is still yet to come. We need to anticipate the bridegroom coming back for his bride. A good reminder for me about this is found in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. It says this, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is the only one that knows his timing. He knows the fullness of time. Just because Jesus hasn't come back yet doesn't mean that he won't. In fact, because he has said that he will return, we have all the prophecies over all the Old and New Testament about what happens with his return, we ought to have hope. We must have hope. God fulfills his promises. The God King has made himself known. Our hope can only be in him. Are you ready for that return? Do you have a right relationship with God? 
He's coming back to claim the kingdom, to wipe out all the wicked. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? All we can say is come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for what it reveals about you, what you have declared. God, there's so much that you have promised about the future. We've seen many fulfillments uh, through Jesus in his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago, but he did not fulfill everything, God. You are consistent. You are literal, and you fulfill your your prophecies at the appointed time. God, for all the prophecies that have not yet come to be fulfilled, that we have not yet seen, we anticipate those of the future. We don't want to strike those down or or change the interpretation because that strips you of your glory. We want to see your glory, Lord, as your prophecies, your word is active and it becomes fulfilled in our eyes. God, we seek Jesus to come back soon. We seek this Messiah, this King, to set up his kingdom. We anticipate, we know that he is going to come back and we know the promises of the future. We're thankful that we have the deposit guaranteeing all that will happen in the future, that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us as believers. And God, I pray that if there's anyone in here today that does not understand the future, that they do not know where they will be for eternity, that they would come to the decision to seek what your word says. What your truth declares the only way to be right with you is through the blood of Jesus paying the penalty for our sins. And I pray that that would be on the heart of each one here this morning, that we would be either thankful for that already occurring in our lives or that we would be hopeful that we can see the remission of our sins, that Jesus has paid our price. God, I pray that everyone in this room would come to that realization that we would anticipate the coming of the King that we would be ready when he returns. We thank you for declaring this to us, Lord, and I pray that you would make us ready, that you would mold us more into the image of Jesus all the days of our life, that we would have closeness with you, that we would have a right relationship with you, and that we would continue to fight sin. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for all that you have done, all that you have declared, and all that you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.